All right, here we go. Here's how we're going to do it today. We're going to um, we're going to run over the disciplines on the back of the notebook in just a moment, and then um, we're actually going to break up into our small groups and do them first for about 40 minutes or so, and then we're going to come back, and then we'll do the the lesson. Uh, start in on the how to study the Bible. So. Um, the last three that we will have together, this one and our next two, our last two uh, lessons are all from this packet that you got today. So you will, well, at least this week and next uh, time is. You won't get a handout next time. So you want to make sure you hold on to this one for sure because we'll be working out of it on two different Saturdays, okay? So let's, uh, let's go ahead and talk about your build disciplines um, on the back of your notebook. So if you want to flip it on over, you can, or if you can think through it uh, on your own without uh, having to look at it, that's great too. You want to be able to get kicked in the middle of the night and go to heart, the home, ministry. That's what you want to do. And so what do we mean when we talk about the heart? We're talking about, um, really, discipline one is, is really more about God's word than it really is about your heart, but we're talking about it from the reference point of the heart, that you bring your heart you shepherd your heart, you lead your heart, you discipline your heart to come before the God of, uh, to come before the Word of God, to meet with the God of the Word. Um, and what is crucial to discipline one is remembering that Scripture is not like a VCR or a Blu-ray manual or any other kind of manual of operation. It's not a simply something that you go to look for for instructions on how to do something. Will the Bible tell you how to do stuff? Absolutely. But if you approach the Bible and come to it just so that you can kind of learn how to do stuff that's Christian, you are very likely going to miss the God of the Word. And I think that is the therein lies the huge difference. That's what separates one man out from another in a church. The man who comes to God's Word in worship and in love and in adoration of God and says, I will die if I don't see him in the pages of Scripture. I want to meet with him. I need to be cleansed again by him. I want to get a fresh gaze and look at him again. And that man is in God's word for those reasons. And the next guy over here is in it because, well, you know, he's got, a, he's got some things he's got to do. And he's got to figure out how to do them. And so he's going to go to God's word like it's an instruction, an instruction manual for living. Um, I'll tell you every time, hands down, which guy I want to interact with God's sheep in the church. Because you being a man who is near to God is everything. It is everything. And the word of God is a tool. It is a great means to a greater end than itself. And the greater end is God. So you come and you use the word of God. And it causes you to value the word of God in a great way when you see it as the right kind of means that it is to an end. It doesn't make you treat it shabbily. But when you see the word of God properly as the glorious means to an even more glorious end, God, oh man, you treasure the word of God. Not because of merely words, not merely because of uh, winning theological arguments or checking off a box, you value it because that's God's letter to you and that is the best you can have of God right now. That's the best you can get of God right now is what he has revealed of himself through his word. Someday faith will become sight and the best that you will get of what God has is you'll see him face to face. 
Until then, the word of God. Because of the God of the word. That man is, that's a man you want to put, and that's a man you want to say, oh my goodness, step into people's lives. Get close to people. Get close to sinners. Right with that, though, without making a, much of a, a step away from that, you step right into your home, discipline number two. Um, you cannot play leapfrog over your heart. You can't play leapfrog over the Bible. You cannot play leapfrog over your house that you live in. The people that you live with, uh, sons, daughters, uh, parents, mom and dad, roommates, you need to be working on making an impact there. You, the place that you live should give off an aroma of the gospel. It should give off an aroma of, of the God of the word. People should walk into your life where you live and say, this is, this is an unusual place. This is a place where God's word is supreme. This is a place where God himself is supreme. I can see it. I hear it in the way people talk. I see it in the way he lives. I see it in the way that he, in the things that he does. I see it in the things he doesn't do in this home. I see it in the way he relates with his wife, his kids, his parents, his roommates. I see it. Um, that's the first place of impact. And God's word places great emphasis on the home, as we've seen, right? A man who is shepherding his heart, a man who is shepherding his household with the, with the word of God so that they might know God and the gospel, that is a man that you should say in your body, the gate is wide open. Run into the lives of people in this church, please. Help, please. Because that's a man, when anybody gets near to him, they're going to say, whether it's in ministry at church, whether it's in public at work and you're ministering to people with the gospel, no matter where you are, you might step into that guy's home and you go, huh, what this guy is out where I see him is exactly what he is in his home. He's not a two-faced man. What he is out here in the world is what he is at home. He's the same man. That's a ministry of integrity. Okay? And we all know it, and we've talked about this, I don't know, probably every time we, we look at the back of our notebooks, where churches fail with men is, is by putting them in places of leadership and ministry before they've even thought about what kind of a man is he with God's word and what's he like in his home. And the next thing you know, he's plugged into people and people are following him and then his marriage blows up. It doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. And so what we want to do is try to focus on the discipline ourselves in such a way with the word, our homes, and then ministry in such a way that we can maybe eliminate some of those things from happening or catch some of those sinful tendencies in our hearts sooner than later. <coughs> then that kind of a man who's operating that way in the church, we want to say, you know what, discipline four, let's put some qualifications in front of you. Let's, let's put qualifications, for, especially for deacons and also for elders, but let's put those in front of you, and, and now let's be prayerful about them. Um, those should be something that you are praying through on a regular basis. The character qualities, the qualifications uh, for ministry in, as a deacon or as an elder. I, I encourage you guys to aim for those things. Um, the old adage, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. If you do not aim, if you aim at no qualification for your life, guess what you'll hit every time? An unqualified life. So aim for the qualifications. Aim for them. Put your sights on them. Be prayerful about it. Ask God for help. And um, he will move you in that direction. Discipline five 
is what we're finally going to touch on today in the last uh, next two times. And that is the hermeneutic. How we handle God's word is really crucial, isn't it? If we want to draw near to God through his word, we need to make sure that we are handling his word carefully. And um, you might say, well, then why on earth did you wait till the very end? Why would that not be first? Because uh, I think it's I think the word of God is pretty self-evident. I think you can read it. And for the most part, as you read it at face value, you're going to get the main meaning. God kind of communicates that way. He kind of communicates like us. That you don't have to say to your wife, now listen, here are the 12 rules of interpretation for when I speak. And I just want to go over these first today before I say a word. Because if I don't say them and you don't understand these, you won't properly, you won't be very careful with my words. We don't have to do that. Communication makes sense. God designed it to be that way. And none of us like to communicate our desires, our needs, our, our wants, our passions, our commands, and not be understood. We communicate to be understood, and God did. And so I think it's possible for you to read your Bible, never get 12 principles or 40 principles or 140 principles of interpretation, and you will be able to enter into the heart of God and know the God of the Word. However, the reason we put them at the end is because the kind of man, now listen carefully, the kind of man that you say, here's how you should study the Bible. You need to be a certain kind of man who is equipped to study the Word of God. If you give rules of interpretation to a guy who's not careful with his heart, who knows what he's going to come up with? And so we have purposely stressed at the very beginning the kind of man you are, the kind of man you are, the kind of man you are, your desire for the Word, your desire for the God of the Word. People, love people that you live with, with the Word of God. Love the people that you step into ministry with. Um, and now, being that kind of a man, it is a joy to say, now here's how we want to be careful. When you're dealing with God's Word in this way, measure twice, cut once. Be careful. Measure twice, cut once. Um, that's a good carpenter, right? You need to be that way with the Word of God. And so now we're going to equip you and open the door. Uh, really what I'm going to be going over just sets the stage for H3 for you if you move on to that. And Smed will take a whole year of um, laying down the foundation hard there for you. And then lastly, you're not at any church out there. You are at Grace Bible Church. And so taking all of that, the heart, the home, the ministry, qualification for ministry, um, the right hermeneutic needs to be applied at this church. And this church has a biblical vision concerning the glory of God, the cross of Christ, and a changed life by the Spirit of God. Also that we might be very active in the gospel in drawing in, building up, and sending out. You need to apply all of that here in that sense. So there you have it. That is biblical manhood, I think. You want to be a biblical man? You cannot miss these kinds of things. Um, we were just talking about that earlier, earlier Mark and I were. And, um, these are things that are very important. Um, you don't want to miss these things. Okay? Now, with that said, what we're going to do is um, we're going to go into our small groups. I'm going to take Tom's group today. Let's start with the quote. Uh, we're going to we're going to spend our last three times together and build talking about um, how we want to handle scripture. OK. Um, and so what I have for you this time and for next time is, is a, a couple of quotes that um, I think will actually be helpful for you 
um, in terms of how to understand your Bible and how your Bible's put together, how we want to handle the Bible. This is from Paul House. He has a book called Old Testament Theology, and he's got many other books. And, and I, I think this is a very helpful uh, little paragraph. He says, though Old Testament theology has a close relationship to the New Testament, the two have discrete witnesses of their own. Now, what I want to do maybe is, is, uh, is, is maybe try to illustrate this if I can. Okay, um, here's your Bible. Okay, and let's say, um, obviously, over here, this is your Old Testament, and uh, let's say over here, that's your New Testament. Okay, now what he's saying is, there is a, um, there is a theology, an Old Testament theology, that exists, and there is a New Testament theology that exists. In other words, as you read the Old Testament, you're going to draw some theological conclusions about God as he is revealed in the Old Testament. When you read your New Testament, you're going to also uh, make some conclusions about God and his nature and his character um, in the New Testament. Above even that is what we would call biblical theology. And that is, you've got to put them together, right? You want to talk about what the whole Bible says about who God is. However, what he's trying to emphasize here, and I think rightly so, is that there is a, dis- there, there's a, there's a discrete witness that the Old Testament has on its own that needs to be paid attention to. Let's look at this. Though Old Testament theology has a close relationship to the New Testament, the two have discrete witnesses of their own. At one place, there is a spot for both of these to have their own voices, to not join them yet in harmony in the one song that is Scripture. Do you understand? Let this one sing all by itself. It's got a solo. It's a good one. Okay? Then we're going to let this one sing too, all on its own, but what's best is when you put them together, and what they sound like is, is, is the best, okay? Therefore, therefore, uh, Old Testament theology must state the Old Testament's unique message before, before incorporating the New Testament perspective. You need to let this speak first. Why? Because that's the way God did it. That came first. Let it speak first, not last, first. The ultimate goal is still to produce what? Biblical theology, yet to unite um, the Testaments at the proper moment. Okay, you've got to unite it all together, but you have to do it at the proper moment. This, produce, uh, this procedure is sound on historical, canonical, and exegetical grounds and will make scriptural unity plainer then starting from this side and working back, starting from this side and working back, we are New Testament, we are guys who love the New Testament. And it's obvious why. Because this is where we find ourselves generated in the church, right? And the gospel of Jesus, that's where Jesus came, we're Jesus' followers. And, and so we live on this side of the Bible in some ways that we don't live on this side of the Bible. We're familiar on this side of the Bible a whole lot more than what we are with what's on this side of the Bible. 
And our tendency is to read everything and think of everything through this part of the Bible and force it back on this part of the Bible, and it might not be there. Oh, there's a lot of things about God over here that were also over here, and so you'll be safe on those things. But where God has not revealed certain things yet on, uh, over here that he finally does in the New Testament, you can't push all those back over. So you let this Old Testament have its own discrete witness, and then you let the New Testament also then have its discrete witness, and at the proper moment, you then unite the whole thing. Let me give you an, an example. I don't think it's a responsible statement to call any of the people who are over here in the Old Testament, who are believers, the church. Now why? Well, number one, you ain't going to find the word there. They're never going to be described that way. Over here you find it, and you don't even find it until Acts. Well, you actually find Jesus using the word in a couple of key passages, Matthew 16, I will build my church, and... Um, tell it to the church, Matthew 18. But it doesn't exist until over here. Now you say, well, you're just getting nitpicky. They're the people of God. They are. God has a people, of re uh, redeemed people he works with over here. Did he have a people, uh, redeemed people he worked with over here in the Old Testament? Absolutely did. But that just because he works with a redeemed people here that is called the church doesn't mean that Moses in Israel is a church. So what do you do? How do you... And the, and the whole reason, what, let me, instead of telling you the whole reason, what might be the reason that somebody would want to do that? To call this the church over here, and these people over here the church. Why might they want to do that? What do you think? Uh, one reason could be that they want to apply certain rules in the Old Testament to the church. And so if you can make Israel the church, okay. you'd be like, well, these were the laws of the church, so it's the laws for our church. Good. That would be one... Uh, that, that is true. That does happen. What, what would be another reason as well? You have any ideas? Why? What might be the motive of wanting to make both groups kind of the same? Mark, did you have a thought? I don't know. It seems that uh, there's, there's some level of discomfort like that is different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And we want to be different. So we come up with things like, uh, well, God, God's the same, so we have to, the, the word has to be the same, the application of salvation has to be the same. So, you're, you're touching right on um, especially what I was wanting to aim at. It, it's their way of trying to make it be one book. It's the way of trying to hold on to continuity. And God never changes, and, and therefore his Bible doesn't change. And so, it makes me uncomfortable when I hear us talk about two different things going on at the same time in this book, or not at the same time, but you know, as you open up the semen on the face of, of Scripture. So they're the same. And that's the way that we're going to hold the Bible together. Is the motive a good thing? The motive's in one sense a good thing. We, we don't want to talk as if there are two Bibles. We only have one Bible. But the way of going about trying to grab for unity, that's the wrong way to grab unity. Um, I lived for nine and a half years with my wife before we ever had kids. The person that I was before kids came and the person that I am after kids came, and, and I'm the same guy. But there were things that happened in my life that came about that came about when they came and when, when kids came. 
Um, my kids, when they hear about what life was like before them, it's not like they're going, I don't even know who you are. I don't even know that. No, that's me. God doesn't change. But that doesn't mean that he revealed everything of his plan and his connection to his plan all at once. He revealed certain aspects about himself. And then Christ came. And even more was revealed. That doesn't mean we have two different gods. It means that he just revealed himself in stages. It was a process, a progress. So now what's the danger? The danger is we could accent Old Testament theology, Old Testament theology, Old Testament theology, Old Testament theology, run sentence after sentence after sentence, paragraph after paragraph, chapter after chapter on Old Testament theology, period. And we never get to New Testament theology. And that would be a bad thing. You don't, Christians should not preach a message from an Old Testament. They should not do a Bible study from the Old Testament and have it only end there. You have to get to all of it. That doesn't mean your message has to be about the whole Bible every single time, but it means that your message, whatever your teaching is, you have to acknowledge your audience who are Christians. So I'm not going to leave you at Mount Sinai feeling the weight of what was going on at Mount Sinai for, for the Jews and now make you walk out into your day and go, man, do I need to do that? You see, at the right time, you have to unite the other witness to it and understand how your Bible is put together. And so that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at together as we go through this, okay? Any thoughts or questions on that? Nothing? Why don't you take a quick look at your green sheet. I'm going to just go over your homework with you for next time so that it makes sense. Um, this is just basic hermeneutics part one. It says, please read through the rest of the nine pages um, of the How to Study the Bible handout. It says, from Saturday. It should say, for Saturday, 5-7. Your assignment for our next time together is to read all of this handout that you got today. Okay, because we're going we're gonna to cover basically about two pages of it, and then we're going to cover all the rest of it next time. So it would be really helpful if you guys could come next time, and in particular, really read through the 12 principles of interpretation um, that, that are, are there. That's what we'll be covering for the bulk of the next time, okay? Bring any questions you have. And I put down there that Smed will be coming in to talk to us, and, and I, that I don't know if he actually will because he has H3 at the same time, and he's really ramping up at, at the end here. They are all now pre preparing to give their, their messages, their 20-minute their preaching message to the rest of the guys. What they've been working on all year is, is a passage of Scripture. And he's been meeting with each one of them over the course. I go to I walk into his office every week, and he's sitting with somebody else. And, and they're going over their passage, and uh, they're diagramming it, and they're getting a structure for how to present it. And... Um, so I don't know if he'll actually be able to come in, but if he can, I, I really want him to come in because he can talk about H3 with you guys better than I can. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to do that. Now, oh, is, it, is the seventh a retreat? So he obviously won't be coming in on the seventh. If he does come in, it'll be on the other one, the last date, but um, we'll see. Let me explain to you that the, the, the stapled thing that you have, how to study the Bible, is actually this big. You've only got about the first nine pages of it. Um, I've got a good friend. His name is Joel James. He's the author of this. Um, 
we lived, uh, we went to the same church in Nebraska. We grew up together um, there at the in our early days in Christ. We were on, we were in the same dorm. I lived on the third floor, and he was on the fourth floor. And we one day, uh, like one of the first days of, of, of school, um, we were walking. I was, I opened the door in the stairwell and was coming down the stairs, and he was coming right behind me. And um, we were as different as different can be. The way that I looked was not the way that he looked. He was a, a farm boy from South Dakota, and, and I was trying to be anything but a farm boy from anywhere in the Midwest. And I was walking down the steps, and we were walking across the campus at the University of Nebraska. And every, as we're walking, it takes like 20 minutes to walk to where I was going. Um, I was going to an FCA meeting, and and uh, this guy is like... He, He's, wherever I go, it's like where he's going. And we finally get to the building, and um, I open the door, and he, I go, so where are you going? <laughs> and he walks in and he says, I'm going to the FCA meeting. I go, no way, I am too. And he looked at me in disbelief because of the way that I used to look back then. He's like, there's no way you're going to anything that has Christian in it. <laughs> and the whole way that we were walking across the campus, and as we kept going, he kept thinking and praying of how he was going to witness to me. <laughs> and I had already been saved for about uh, maybe two years at that point. But um, anyway, he went to the Master's Seminary eventually, and so did I. And he went through the doctorate program a year before I did, and, and I went through. And this was his, the, the Leviticus 19 thing that I did for our church when I preached through that. This is what he did for his doctorate work. And he is a pastor in, in South Africa, in Pretoria, South Africa. He, the, the men in his church will probably never, ever learn Greek or Hebrew. They have about an eighth grade education and they know English. And so he thought, I have to be able to equip my men to handle the English word of God the best that they can. And this is what he did. This is an amazing tool for English-speaking guys who will probably never go with Greek and Hebrew. Um, and this is an amazing tool. Um, if you want the whole thing, um, I'll email it to you. Just um, let me know. Send me an email or tell me and I'll write your name down today. Um, but it's basically, a, it'll take you through block diagramming, regular sentence diagramming. It'll take you through everything you'd want to know. If you're going to go into H3, you got to have it anyway. It's a good thing to work through over the summer if you're going to go into H3 the next year. It's an excellent stool, uh, tool to study the Word of God. Okay? All right, so if you want to have that, you can let me know, uh, and I'll, I'll email it to you. Let's talk about presuppositions. Open up to, mine says page 3. Is that what yours says, the presuppositions? Page 3. Okay? This notebook assumes the following presuppositions. Everybody has presuppositions. When you come to the Bible, the questions are, do you have God's presuppositions? Right? We talked about this um, in terms of bias. Everybody has biases as they approach the word of God. The question is, is do you have God's bias that he has towards himself? Um, he must save you out of your bias, your sinful bias against him, to give you his bias about himself and what his words are. And these are five ways of summarizing the presuppositions that we need to have and must have. Number one, the Bible is God's written revelation to man. And thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary 
inspired equally in all parts, word of God. The Bible is complete in all respects. It is equally inspired in all parts. There's no limits placed on it in regards to inspiration. It's not that there are some parts that are more inspired than others. They all are. All parts are equally inspired by others. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Why don't you turn there with me? 1 Corinthians 2. Getting texted already to send the notebook. <laughs> That's great. I love it. All right. Where, where do I have to turn to? First Corinthians two. I'm not. What'd you say? You got, I was tweeted. No, it's texted. I don't have that. I'm not newfangled like that. I don't tweet. I'm a Christian. That works everywhere. First Corinthians two verse seven. Paul says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. It's the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age uh, has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And I believe that what he's talking about in regards to the mystery is tied up with the gospel, and in particular, the gospel forming the church. Um, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man and that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And he gives an illustration. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Apply it now for us, Paul, this illustration. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but we receive the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. Speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but we speak in words that are taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, he does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually Appraised. Um, turn back. To, I don't have this one written down, but turn to John 16, verses 12 and 13. You can write that one down also with uh, these verses. John 16, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you. He's speaking to the disciples in the upper room, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and he will disclose it to you. And now go to Second Peter 1, verse 20. In fact, we're going to back up to verse 16 because this is just too good to not touch on this. Peter is writing... And he says, we, verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not, our words to you, they weren't this cleverly devised tale, but actually we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw something with our own eyes. We saw his majestic character with our own eyes. 
He's going to explain that, verse 17. For when we receive, or when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now when did that happen? Transfiguration, up on the mountain. He says that. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He said, look, we didn't... Cleverly devised tales, that's not our, our message. We didn't come, it didn't come from that. We were eyewitnesses of something. We were, in fact, we were on a mountain, and God in all of his majestic glory pointed down to his son and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's our message to you. Now notice what he says in verse 19. This is staggering. We have the prophetic word, more sure. Full stop. Do you know what he's saying in 2 Peter 1, verse 19? He's saying, we had this amazing experience. Amazing. And this is Peter. This is Peter. Yeah. Peter is saying, I, we the apostles had an amazing experience. Up on a mountain, we heard God's voice. We saw Moses. We saw Elijah. There was the Son of God in all his radiant, glorious splendor. We saw all of that. We heard God speak and say, my son, my beloved son, listen to him. I saw that with my own eyes, he says. I was an eyewitness. And guess what he says? Do you know what's even more sure than my experience? The prophetic word in the Old Testament. You see, because what would have happened here if he would have based everything on that is it would have given the impression to the church that you know what counts? You know what counts? Is, is visions of God seeing things. But you know what's even more sure than that? Is everything that God made clear through the prophets. We have the prophetic word more sure to which you, see what can he point them to? You have to do well, you would do well to pay attention to that. The prophetic word. Not my experience, or wait for your own experience. You have to go to the prophetic word. It's more sure than my experience. But you would do well to pay attention as, a, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now he's going to talk about that prophetic word. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by any act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God. That's why it's more sure. Yeah, the only thing that he could have pointed to at this point uh, in terms of an act of prophecy would have been Old Testament acts of prophecy. Um, so he's referring to his Old Testament here. And his, his whole point here is, I think, number one, again, on our page, the Bible is God's written revelation to man. Thus, the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute um, the plenary Word of God, the inspired equally in all parts Word of God. Um, we assume that to be true. If we do not assume that to be true, if we don't, do not presuppose that um, together, we, we can't go another step because we will divide at every point possible. Um, that's the way God views His Word, I believe. That's the way we view God's word. It's really hard to have a discussion with somebody who doesn't believe that. Okay, Derek. Good yeah. Uh, what do we do with uh, like Paul in First Corinthians when he talks when he talks about uh, this is I telling you this, not the Lord? Yeah. How do we handle that part? 
Yeah. Um, what do we do with Paul saying, you know, this is my instruction to you, not the Lord's? Um, I think all, the way you, you see that, I think what Paul is intending there is that this is revelation from God that did not come through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's much that he didn't teach, that the Lord Jesus didn't teach at all, because he had to wait for the fullness of time to come with his crucifixion and his resurrection and the coming of the, the Spirit at Pentecost. He didn't teach in advance all the things that the church would have to deal with. And so all he is saying, I think, is, this is my instruction to you. It's not from the Lord. I don't think he's trying to say, the Lord, whatever the Lord taught you was inspired, but you know, not what I'm teaching you here on this. Um, and Peter, in this very book, uh, talks about Paul's letters in chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Um, Paul's scriptures here are thought of by Peter as on the same par as the Old Testament. Um, so I don't think there's any divergence of you know, quality of, of what is coming from Paul or from the Lord. I think he's just making a distinction that you know only I could bring this revelation because Jesus didn't reveal it himself. Yeah. Is that the is that the same as like when he's talking about marriage? He's he's yeah. like I think it's better than you. Yeah. Okay. In fact, that's probably what you were thinking of. Yeah. First Corinthians yeah. seven. Yeah. Yeah. communication, yeah, we understand how that could happen. This is at an inspiration level of communication. In that sense, it's very different than what you and I do. But but, but it is a... Yeah. What, what we... I think what we feel attention on sometimes is we feel that, well, um, we don't want to say that, well, only Jesus could speak inspired words. It was God's intent that Jesus wouldn't speak all of the inspired words. It was his intent that his apostles would have the wisdom revealed to them that Old Testament prophets didn't have and that Jesus didn't even bring. Uh, but they speak for Christ and uh, they add on to what he spoke. Number two, the word of God is an objective propositional revelation. Um, Truths that stand for themselves. First Thessalonians 2, you know, says you receive the word of God for what it is. It's not the word of man. It's the very words of God. We, are, we just looked at First Corinthians 2. So the word of God is an objective propositional revelation verbally inspired in every word. God breathed. Second Timothy 3.16. Absolutely inerrant in the original documents. Infallible, which means incapable of erring. And it's God-breathed. Okay? We teach the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days. Now, 
that grammatical historical interpretation of scripture is going to be outlined for you on pages 5 and following when we get together next time. But that's what we hold to. And that, in, um, that system of interpretation, the grammatical, historical, literal, has really fallen on hard times these days. Uh, it is not in vogue at all. Because it is, it is characterized, uh, it is made into a caricature, it's, it's wooden, stiff literalism, it's, it's, oh, you're just concerned about words, and you're not concerned about bigger ideas, and it's so microscopic. In fact, I was told by uh, a dear pastor friend of mine that it's, it's very atomistic, A-T-O-M. It's about atoms and <coughs> tiny little things and concerns like you know grammar and prepositions and articles and things like that. And what you need to do is be able to push away and say, oh, the bigness of God and scripture. And, and so if you come down like that, you're going to miss, you know what? Is that true? Yeah, you can do that. It doesn't have to be that way. No. Um, but we take words at their normal language level of understanding. We'll talk about that more. Um, number three, the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith. And again, infallible means incapable of erring. So there's a rule that God has for us. It's a rule that's applied to what we believe, our faith. It's a rule of faith, and it's a rule for how we should live, our practice. And the rule that has been given to us is an infallible rule. It's incapable of erring, this rule, that determines what we believe and it determines how we live. That's the Bible. That's what we're saying there. The Word of God, the Bible, constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We can't go anywhere else to find another rule for what to believe and another rule for how to live. Um, all of these passages, we won't take the time to look at them right here, but I encourage you to go look at them. Jesus in Matthew 5.18 says, You know, not the smallest stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, Matthew 24, verse 35, he says, Evan and earth shall pass away, but my word will not pass away. And John 10, 35, he says, the scripture cannot be broken. Um, in chapter 16, we saw this already before, that the Holy Spirit speaks what he hears, and he's the one who guides them into all of the truth. Chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. There's no other source of truth for us. 1 Corinthians 2.13, again, that we are taught not with human wisdom, but we're taught by the wisdom of the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.15-17 uh, is there talking about um, the Old Testament scriptures and Paul's writings. Did we talk about that? Did I show you that in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is inspired by God? What, what is all scripture there? Did we talk about that here? No? I want to do that. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll tell you what. Go back to verse 10. Everybody knows verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Sometimes we add on verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And sometimes we're really good and we back up to verse 15. Look at verse 15. And that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And for Timothy, those sacred writings would be what? The Old Testament. And so all scripture is inspired, but what's Paul thinking of? The Old Testament. Well, I want you to know that I think uh, what Paul's saying here is, is much more than just the Old Testament. Back up to verse 10. Let's take the full context. 
Now, Timothy, last letter of Paul to Timothy. Timothy, you followed my what? I'm an apostle. And you followed my teaching. Okay? You also followed a lot of other things. You followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions and my suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What what did Paul do there? He got distracted, like he does. He started talking about all the persecutions, and he's at the end of his life. He's being persecuted right now. He's in prison. Death sentence day has probably been set, and he's saying, Timothy, hurry up and get to me. But here's my last instructions to you. You followed my teaching. You followed everything about what I was. Now let me get back to where I was at before, Paul says, verse 14. You, however... Continue in the things you have learned. Who who did he get the learning from? And become convinced of them. Knowing from whom you have learned them. Who did you learn them from? Me, the apostle. You followed my teaching. You got some learning that you got from me. You need to become convinced of what you learned from me, the apostle Paul. Know whom you learned them from. And, all right, so in your life you've got my teaching, and, verse 15, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. What are those? The Old Testament. Man, it is powerful. It is a good Old Testament. You have known the sacred writings which are able, they are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, let me go ahead and summarize everything that I've been saying to you. What do you have? You have what I taught you. I'm an apostle. And what else do you have? Sacred writings. Verse 16. Guess what? All scripture is inspired by God. Does Paul know what he's doing when he's writing? I think he does. All scripture. Because if he was going to not include his own writings, when he referred to the Old Testament in verse 15, he probably would have just used scripture, the word scripture. But he didn't, because he didn't want to just isolate that word for the Old Testament writings. So he uses a phrase that I'm not sure it appears anywhere else in the New Testament. I need to check and see. So, but he calls it sacred writings. Because what he wants to do is he wants to put on the same par as the sacred writings, his teachings, and he wants to call all of that scripture. He knew what God was doing. God was adding revelation to the current revelation base that was given. Um, so the Bible constitutes this. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly a part of it. Absolutely. Um, Paul, I think, knew what was going on. I think Peter knew what was going on. Paul knew in in 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, verse 18. Let me tell you what the scripture says in regards to elders who rule well or to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Here's what the scripture says. Uh, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's Deuteronomy. So that's what scripture says. And let me tell you what else scripture says. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Where's that? It's Jesus. Paul's thinking, 
he's knowing there's more revelation going on. Let me tell you what scripture says. Old Testament, Jesus. And he's also knowing that in, in, in Ephesians 2 and 3, uh, there's, a, there's a revelation of a mystery that has come, and it couldn't be known in the times past. In the Old Testament, the Old, Prophet, Old Testament prophets couldn't know it. In fact, the angels didn't even know it. But it was given to us, the apostles, to reveal writings about the church and how the gospel would influ- uh, work itself out in, in believers of Gentile and Jewish background. Um, so there's your Bible. Hebrews 4.12. Powerful to penetrate, able to judge. Yes? Question? Yeah. Second Peter 3.16, would that be another text that would support New Testament revelation of being scripture? Yeah. I think that was what I was trying to look at earlier. I may not have read all of it. Yeah, that was what I was reading. Um, the rest of the scriptures. Peter put Paul's writings on the same par with the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. If it wasn't the same as the Old Testament scriptures, he wouldn't refer to it and say, just like the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. In his mind, it's on the same par. Yeah. Okay, so the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Number four, God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. Okay, when you're thinking of the Bible, and you're thinking of the intent of the author, you need to be thinking of author little a and author capital A, right? Um, The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man. That was 2 Peter 1 that we saw. And they did it um, without error in the whole and without error in the part. Okay, Matthew 5.18 talks about Um, not one stroke of the law will pass away. In other words, Jesus is emphasizing what the law was supposed to, uh, what the law was intended to do and point to and reveal even the little Hebrew stroke is so important in God's mind that that won't even pass away. And then on the other end of the spectrum, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired. All of it, the slightest stroke and all of it together stands as inspired, okay? And there's two authors involved. There's the human author who's writing, and there's the capital A author who's carrying along, the Spirit of God carrying them along writing. And you can certainly see differences in writing. You know, I could, any Christian who's read through the New Testament, I could very easily read First John to them, not tell it's First John, and read... Um, Hebrews, something from Hebrews, and say, which one is the Apostle John? You know John's writing. I mean, he has a style of writing. You know uh, the way that Luke writes as you study. I mean, Luke's Luke's a a trained Greek man. His Greek is not layman Greek. He is clinical. He's a doctor. And you can see it. And that comes out. But that is not, that doesn't override the capital A author. The capital A author uses that lowercase a author's style and personality. Lastly, number five. This is so important, guys. This is a presupposition. This is foundational. While there may be several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there is but one true interpretation. You need to underline that, and you need to go back and you need to soak on what that means. There may be several applications that will come from a passage of Scripture. 
But there is only one interpretation. Interpretation means meaning. There's only one meaning in that passage. The meaning of Scripture is to be found as one diligently applies this literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. Under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we need the Spirit's help. Okay, it's not like it's a formula and here's these rules. I'm going to give you these 12 rules of interpretation. And you know what? When you use them, you don't even need the Spirit of God. You can get it. No. Whatever. Give yourself 112 rules. You still need the Spirit of God to help you. Um, we need his illuminating work in our lives. It is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the true intent, and I would add of the author there just to make it even more clear, carefully in, uh, to ascertain carefully the true intent and meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. Proper application. The right kind of application to the right people in the right ways. Yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. Let me... Um, let me illustrate. If I <coughs> with the book, the Bible. Okay? Um, we'll do it in, in regards to uh, Mosaic Law. Let's say over here in the Old Testament is um, Mosaic Law. M F. Okay? And right on the pages of the of that Bible is um, uh, Moses. And Israel. Okay? Meaning, or interpretation, is found right there, and there is only one. The intent, or the meaning that God gave in a certain Mosaic Law passage, it's one. It's only one meaning. And it was then lifted from the pages of Scripture and applied to Moses. Okay? Application. Let me give you another layer after this. Years later, there's another Jew... He's an exiled Jew. He lives in Babylon. He's not in a temple. The temple's down. Well, there's only one meaning in this text, in Mosaic Law, that he can't even go to the temple. He can't bring a sacrifice. So from that, we have to bring another application. The way that he will apply that to his life might look a little different than the way Moses did. There's only one meaning in that passage. Let me give you a little bit more. Time goes on, and there's this guy, Jesus. And he's 12. And he's living on this, but it only has one meaning. And how he then goes and applies it might look a little different than the guy in, who's exiled. It might look a little different than Moses. Things are starting to change. How many meanings? For one. Go a little further. And here's Paul in the New Testament church. 
right? The Pentecost has come. There's how many meanings in this text? One. How it is applied looks a little different. Keep going. Here we are up here somewhere. We'll kind of end with that, right? Okay. This is what you have to understand. You cannot speak as if, well, this passage means one thing here, and then it means another thing here, and then the passage means another thing here, and then it means another thing here. Now, there's only one meaning. It was given in one setting at one time for one specific intent, to, re to reveal one specific intent from the capital A author who wrote through the lowercase author, Moses. However, it then gets applied in its proper places, and that's what Joel is trying to say here, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. How it is applied gets, gets bound to every generation, but it's the application of it. And how it is applied might look a little different each time it goes. Okay? And we're going to get into this a lot more. Scott, Yo! I want to ask you a question. I don't know if this is going to be. Okay. Um, would you agree or disagree that there may be a passage with no application? Can you give me an example of what you think? A genealogy? Um, no, but I'm just thinking of I'm thinking through things in the Old Testament. Yeah. I'm not getting anything specific right off the top of your mind. I say um, Yeah, that would be. Don't want to be thinking yeah. Long. That's a good question. That would mean we'd be saying then that God intended to communicate content, a meaning. But he didn't want it to make an impact on their lives. Yeah, I guess my question would be, are you saying, or is your position that every word in here has an application for all of us? Yes. Okay. And it, but it might not look exactly like it was applied to every believer before, especially when it comes to Mosaic Law. Especially. Mark. It may not have an application to every reading every day, though, because we don't want to read our Bibles and... and Compare what we read in, in Leviticus. What, 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 what application should I find? Do you see what I mean? No, I'm not following your question. Try it again. It's um, with knowledge that every word has application to us. Mm -hmm. um, my tendency would be to, to undo everything we've been talking about. about the, the reading scripture now look for application for me in every word as, as a solution to me. Yeah. Um, just because, yeah, application is not, uh, it, it might look a little differently than you think. If, if there's Old Testament instruction about what a, a man and a woman are supposed to do if they are unclean, I should not read that as a Christian today and go, okay, now, how do I apply this unclean idea today? Let me think, let me get creative. Um, what a lot of times, especially in Mosaic Law sections, what we do is we recognize that um, you, you have to draw from your interpretation of the passage 
like a, you can look for something theological or even um, salvation soteriologically, and you look for what is it that God was trying to reveal about the way that he saved and sanctified Israel. Okay? And so here are some principles that I see that are revealed about God in this law of how he saved and sanctified Israel. Now, walk forward in your Bible. Well, for you, it would be this way. To the New Testament, right? Now go, now here comes Jesus. And you take into consideration many of the things that he said, like thus he declared all foods clean. Oh, so now my uncleanness, I don't have to worry about it being food and things like that. And how does he go about saving and sanctifying us? And so now I look for New Testament principles of sanctifying and cleansing us. First uh, John 1, 8, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Tied right in there with an advocate who propitiated for us. And so now I, I'm not looking to apply in detail unclean things because I touched them or I ate them or because of discharge or whatever. Now I'm thinking about Oh, here's what hasn't changed. They're still uncleanness. There's still a need for cleansing. Application, the, the definition of the word. It's one of those words that when I see it, I think automatically application to me. And it might be just this applies to this other scripture. The application of uncleanness and how you can clean. It's not look for an application to me in my life to look for how this applies to someone. Here's here's one of our greatest problems, is we root together two things that need to be separated, meaning and application. And that's what we're going to get at here. What you just said to me made it sound like application was more like meaning. I have to take its meaning into my life today. Um, I can't do that with Mosaic Law and some passages in the Old Testament. I can't do that. what you have to do is recognize that there is a meaning, and from that comes an application. That's why I tried to even visualize that here. Okay? And what, what that means is not that, that I'm looking for, I have to find the exact same way in which this was detailed. I have to figure out a way to practice that in my life. No, it's pointing forward. You, you have to draw from that principles. We're going to talk about this. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. What you said that helped me is. Even your example was the application of that section of Mosaic Law. That that application that's there, so there's not an applicationless part of Scripture. That application may not be for what am I going to do today? Yeah, you, some for some understanding. You know, so much of the Old Testament law, the application could be. Yeah, there's a lot of application that's that way, that I come forward in, into Christ and I, and I see who he was and what he accomplished and what he did, and there's new law for me now. So a lot of times the application is that. Um, there are some who will... Here's, let me show you what I'm uncomfortable with. And, and you might take issue with this, and then we're, we're going to drop this in room. Okay. Um, there are some... You know, in the Old Testament, there's a, there's an, a Mosaic law that says... Uh, on your house, you need to build a parapet. You need to put a fence around because you need to protect other people. 
if they come up on your house and you're up on the roof and they get too close to the edge and they fall off, um, that's not loving your neighbor. And so, therefore, as Christians, what we should do is make sure that we don't have unequal sidewalk, you know, where, the, where one might be bumping up high and somebody come to our house and get tripped. You see, that's the application of that passage. I'm not crazy about that. Um, and I've got reasons for that. And I'm not saying that, that love for neighbor is not um, important in the New Testament. It's very important. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be concerned about people who come on your property. I'm not sure that was the intent of that passage even for, is, is, is for us. It was intended for them. There are some principles theologically and, and fellowship-wise and brotherly love that we can draw from that. And we should go forward and think about how that's applied in our day, but it needs to come under, to me that's almost too close. It makes me a little uncomfortable. We'll talk about that afterwards if you want. Turn the page. We're moving on. Um, Scott, would you do me a favor? Would you kick down that thing un- until the air comes on? Um, principles for interpreting scripture. This is section one. There are uh, two wrong ways, and I'm going to introduce to you the third wrong way that's tied to it, and then there's the right way that we want to look at. Let's start with the wrong ways. Through the centuries of Christian uh, Christianity, Bible students have practiced many wrong methods of interpreting the scripture. Uh, here are two common ones you'll want to avoid. The first is one that isn't so much in play anymore, although it does exist in some ways. It's the allegorical method. An allegory is a story in which the people and the events of the story have hidden or symbolic meanings. And those who interpret the Bible allegorically bypass the clear historical meaning of the text and they make imaginative associations between their Christian experience and the persons or events in the text. Let me give an example. Let me erase all this if I can. We'll go back to the Bible here. Okay. Um, here's the question you want to be asking yourself. It's the, it's the million dollar question that you need to ask yourself as you interpret. What is the controlling line of authority? Or maybe better, where is as you're reading somebody or listening to somebody handling the scripture, ask yourself, where is his controlling line of authority? Where is what's making the decision on what this passage means? Allegory says there's a story going on here. Oh, but there's a key to interpreting it. And you know where it's found? The key is actually found outside the text. And if you know this key here, because this is the controlling line of authority, if you get the, the key, like on, a, you know, like on a map, and you've got uh, the map legend, you've got different things, that, well, you, you can look at it and go, what's an L? Oh, I have to move away from the map over to here to the legend. Oh, L means this. And then you come back, oh, now it makes sense. You see, you have to leave the map to go to a, the, the controlling line of authority in order to come back to it. And the allegorical method says you've got to leave the text to go find the controlling line of authority. And then once you find it, then it tells you what the Bible says. And he gives, Joel gives a great example here from 
uh, church history. For example, one church father interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan by making the following associations. The traveler who was attacked represents a person seeking salvation. The robbers present uh, represent Satan. Uh, naturally, the Good Samaritan is Christ. The oil and wine the Samaritan administered to the injured man's wounds picture the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. The donkey is the gospel because it was the vehicle that carried the injured man to the inn, which is the church where the man recovered. <laughs> now, the question you can ask yourself is where is the controlling line of authority on the meaning? See, this is, this is what's true. Uh, interpreting the Bible allegorically means you are going to bypass the clear historical meaning of the text. Okay? Although, Je this is the next paragraph down. Although Jesus taught the parable to answer a specific question, who must I love as my neighbor? That is completely ignored. Now we've got a whole new meaning for this parable that doesn't have anything to do with the question that was presented before Jesus, for which he told the story. That church father found a deeper mystical, not readily apparent meaning for the passage by means of imaginative association. Why? Because the controlling line of authority was not in the text, it was outside of the text. Do you understand that? It was him, exactly right, Alex. The control, this is it. Every single time it's outside of the text, the guy, the guy will try to appear humble. It's, you know... He might point to something else, but really what he's pointing at is his, his own imagination, his own heart. You're going to see this here in a moment. So the evaluation of the allegorical method, the allegorical method obscures the true meaning of God's word by ignoring what the writer actually said. Where's the controlling line of authority? Controlling line of authority is always in your text. It's always in your text. You can, the only way you know what a text means is by what the text says. Not what somebody's imagination says or thinks it says. Since the plain sense, the second bullet point of the text, is ignored, since the controlling line of authority is ignored, there is no means of checking whether an allegorical interpretation is true or not. Next guy comes along and he goes, well, wait a minute, I thought the inn wasn't the church, but it was the temple. No, 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 that can't be right. Well, why not? Because my controlling line of authority says it's not. Well, yeah, but mine does. And so you just have this, you can't determine who's right or wrong. <clears throat> Thirdly, an allegorical interpretation tells you more about the interpreter's imagination than it does about God's word. Okay, now you'll come across this as you read church history. Uh, the church fathers were Origen. Uh, he was, unfortunately, really good at this. Um, but you'll, you'll read this. Okay, now let's talk about another wrong way that is more associated with our day. It is the what-it-means-to-me method, or the neo-orthodox, a new orthodox way of approaching scripture. And anytime you see neo, you should probably be concerned. And again, ask yourself a question, where is the controlling line of authority? This method comes in two different packages. One is a scholarly package, and one is a popular or like a contemporary um, package. Let's start with the scholarly. The neo-orthodox, or reader response method okay that's important that's the reader response method of interpreting scripture is based on a particular view of the bible so this is the way a lot of academicians really smart guys view the bible 
Okay, it's a reader response method. It's, and it has a particular view of the Bible. Modern theologians don't believe the Bible is infallible or inerrant. They don't believe the Bible in itself is God's word. It is merely a record of how men in ages past experienced God. Therefore, the Bible is suggestive but not authoritative in our day. Look, what did they just say? Where's the controlling a line of authority not found? It can't be in the text because it's just suggestive. It's just a record of how people in the past experienced God. So your experience today of God, it might be different than Moses or Paul's or Peter's. So for the neo-Orthodox theologian, the Bible isn't God's word. It, get this, this is the part, it becomes the word of God when you have a significant experience with it while reading it. Your response is what makes it become God's word. I had a response as I read it. Now it's God's word. It wasn't God's word before that. Now it has meaning. Where's the controlling line of authority? Me. Truth is not a concern because that's different for every person. The issue is how the words strike you as you read them. Your response. What the original author wrote is merely a tool that assists you in shaping your own concept of God and how to please them. And here's what cracks me up. This is the postmodern way of viewing language. I'll tell you what, any one of these knuckleheads who believe this and go home, if their kid responded to them and said, Dad, you know what, I understood what you said, but it really didn't strike me, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't do what you said yet. That guy would have to say, you know what, I fully approve. I fully approve of your disobedience of me, because until my words really strike you, they don't have meaning. Now you go home and you try to live with this. Nobody lives with this. The only way they want this and the only place that they will apply this ridiculous way of interpreting words is to the Bible. Anything that claims to have authority. The Constitution of the United States. That doesn't mean that. That was so long ago. So. can't pick this up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, we can't. You can't. I, I'm not afraid to do that. Um, Scott, love wins. Yeah. <laughs> Dog pile in the hallway. Um, this is why you asked him to be here. He's a bouncer. No. Yeah, I mean, that's what this is. And, and that's it within the scholarly world. How, we're not, you know, most people don't operate in that level of it. Um, the last sentence of that little paragraph, the reader's response determines the meaning, not the words themselves, okay? The controlling line of authority is in me and what it means to me. We have a very popular method, which is the last paragraph on that page. This method of interpretation is also widespread on the popular level, reflected in the motto. Well, what this verse means to me is... And how many times have you been in a Bible study and somebody says that? How many times maybe have you said that? I've said that. Well, what this verse means to me, and what we're, what, what are, sometimes we, we're just not careful with the words that we choose, and we're just not saying it the best way. But sometimes, I, I would never assume that, oh, well, he doesn't mean that it doesn't have meaning unless it's his meaning. Um, I wouldn't assume that. I would, I would press, if I heard anybody... Say that I would say, okay, now, what do you mean when you say this is what it means to me? 
Um, okay. Yeah. Maybe when people say that, as far as give people that love Christ, they're really they're saying this stuff applies. Yeah, the, and and again. So we need to be careful when right. someone is trying to apply something. If they say this means right. God, like, Oh, right. But what does that tell you right there? And this is it again. There are two things that are very related, very important together, but they must be separated. Application and meaning. If when we say, well, what it means to me is, well, this is how I applied that passage to my life. I got that. I understand that. It is a terrible way of saying it. And I, I want you to hear that from me. It is a terrible way of saying it. Do not say it that way. Say, this passage has only one meaning, and here's how I applied it. That's the right way to do it. Okay? That, then you understand um, the difference between those things. So, in this what the verse means to me, when you're assuming the worst about what a person's doing with that, that's God's intent. is not the concern of the passage. The historical context, the theological context is irrelevant. Only how it immediately and intuitively strikes the reader matters. In such circles, diligent study is frowned on. You don't have to study your Bible then, because all you have to do is, man, you just do Bible roulette. Wham! I'll just keep reading until something strikes me. I don't have to study. And then all I have to do is come and share that with you. And you've done the same, and we all sit around sharing our responses to how the Bible struck us. And whether or not we got God's intent in the text doesn't matter. Okay, let's evaluate this at the top of the page. Evaluation of the neo-orthodox, what it means to be method. It is based on an errant view of the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, especially at the academic level, it is. And what you cannot assume is that some maybe naive Christian um, isn't also in that same unfortunate place. You need to be very thoughtful as you listen to Christians say these kinds of things. A conversation would be a great conversation. What do you think about the Word of God? Tell me, tell me about what you think about it. Give me your view of the Word of God. You need to shepherd somebody when you hear that kind of talking. Not, don't, don't sit there and pull your gun out and say, tell me what you think. <laughs> no, don't do that, but care for him. Step in the light. I heard you, I heard you refer to Scripture and, 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 and your interaction with it in, in an interesting way. I'd like to unpack that a little bit more. Tell me what you, draw them out. See what they're saying. Because as you do that, you may find out that, oh, yeah, I was using meaning like uh, for the word application. And I, yeah, that probably wasn't really helpful. End of the conversation. Rather than taking out your baseball bat and after the second swing saying, what were you getting? What were you getting? Okay. All right. Second bullet point. The Bible is divine truth, not suggestive, non-authoritative human experience. Okay. The Bible is divine truth, not my experience. Third bullet point, these methods fail to recognize the intent of the original author is what determines the meaning of a document. Where's the controlling line of authority again? It is with the author's intent. Controlling line of authority, the author's, and I also mean the author's intent. You know what? That's how it is for you. Let me tell you this. Here i got some words for you. My wife's love to me is like a rose. If you walk away and you say, one guy says, you know what he meant? Here's what he meant. His wife's love to him is, 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 is beautiful. Like a rose is beautiful. Another guy could say, uh-uh. What he meant to say, 
was his, 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 his wife's love to him is, is fragrant. It, it has a beautiful fragrance to it. Then I go, uh-uh. Every time I trim roses at home, I get stuck by a thorn and I bleed. That's what he meant. Well, wait a minute. Where's the controlling line of authority? Is it in there and trying to deciphering of it? What should they do? They should come back to me. I'm the author. I said what I said. And I'm the one who has a controlling line of authority on what I meant. Don't go someplace else and determine what the meaning is. Come to the source. Stay in the source. Now, I want to give you a, a third possible wrong way, and I'm going to tie this into um, our Genesis series. I want you to ask yourself the question again. Here's the key question. Where is the controlling line of authority? Where is the controlling line of authority? Do you notice where many Christians place the controlling line of authority in Genesis 1? Is it here in the text, or is it someplace else? It's not in the actual words on the page, but but you know what some guys do? Uh, this is what the smart guys do in seminaries. you got to watch out for them. They will say, um, here, let's, let's take these uh, first few pages right here. This is Genesis 1 to 11. They say, do you know what this is? Let me, let me tell you what this is so you can really understand what's going on here on these pages in your Bible. This whole thing right here is, it's a, it's a classification um, of literature um, called exalted prose. You know what the word prose means? Prose means just normal language, normal communication, but this isn't just any normal communication. This is exalted prose. Now, because it is this, let me tell you what this means right here. Where's the controlling line of authority? Up here. And ultimately in me. And guess what? You will never, and Smed did a great job on this last week. Um, I listened to it in, in my office yesterday. He did a great job of saying, you can't get any agreement on what all the scholars say Genesis 1 is. Is it exalted prose or is it saga? Or is it is it myth? I mean, you can't get them all to agree. So they're all pointing to a controlling line of authority outside of the text, and they don't even agree on what it is. It doesn't matter, though, because there's another agenda. It just can't mean what it is here, so I'll give it... It doesn't matter what I appeal to outside and give it authority, or what gives it authority. It just can't mean this. And that's what's going on. Um, or, here's the other thing that really smart guys will do. No, 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 no. Let me tell you what is meant in, in, in Genesis 1 through this thing over here. It's called um, it's called science. And so, you know, scientific thoughts and science, that's the controlling line of authority that determines what God really meant in Genesis 1. Do you see what they're doing? This is a huge question, guys. It'll save you in your own study of the Bible day after day after day, and it'll save you as you sit and listen to other guys preaching. Ask yourself the question, where is the controlling line of authority? And if all of a sudden a guy turns you to the, a page of the Bible, and then next thing you know, he's launched off someplace else to tell you, well, if you really want to understand this, we've got to understand what, what Moses was doing at this time period. I mean, what, what Moses was doing is the 
people of Israel about to enter in, and, and they're about to face all of these other myths, and, and so there's these other... And, and they start appealing to all of that, and therefore, now we know that what's actually going on in Genesis 1 is, I get really suspicious of that. That's not to say that there's not a help in trying to classify what literature is, what kind of style it is, whether it's a poem or not. But get, get, guess what? At the end of the day, I listened to Smed do this once in a conversation with a guy who was going off on that. Smed said to him, great, whatever it is, that's great. Now, tell me, what do these words mean? So you can classify this whatever, but you still have to come back down and deal with words on a page. And the guy didn't want to deal with the words on a page. He just wanted to deal with, he was hovering above the text really high. Oh, I can't, you know, unless we have looked down at Genesis, it can't mean you have to get down into the Bible. Okay? So, you have to be really careful. Ask yourself this question. Where is the controlling line of authority? And the controlling line of authority is always where? It's always the Bible. It's always in the Bible. Um, um, what's interesting, I've seen, and I know people who do this uh, in Revelation often, uh, in classifying the literature a certain way, they then can define the way certain genres should be classified, and then they force scripture to fit into their classification. But at, I mean, it seems subtle at first. They say, oh, this is apocalyptic literature. It's apocalyptic. This kind of literature. And, uh, therefore, and then they just lay their assumptions uh, or apply their assumptions to the way you should interpret it. Yeah. The bottom, what, what they try to, what they try to do, and I don't, you know, a lot of the guys I don't think are like overtly evil trying to do this. But it's persuasive. I mean, whether you, whether you write an account of your day to your wife to communicate to her what happened in your day, or whether you, and it's like a story, it's a, it's a narrative of your day, or whether you say, you know what, at the end of this day, I'm going to write her a poem about my day. Um, yeah, you might be tipped off to some things in the different ways that it's written that would say, well, there's obviously something uh, more flowery going on here. But at the end of the day, you still have to come, regardless of genre, regardless of the classification of it, you still have to come down to words mean something, and the author was trying to communicate something, and I'm going to put the controlling line of authority there. Okay? So great. Classify the literature all you want. That's why I just want to say to guys, oh, you can't take in Revelation 19 to 21. That's literally a thousand years. Well, why not? That's what it says. Oh, it's apocalyptic. Oh, okay. All right, so then tell me, what, what, do, what does a thousand mean? And then when he tells you what a thousand means, you're going to be able to go throughout church history and find 14 million other people who have different ideas of what a thousand means. So which is it? And why can't it just mean, well, what if, what, if, what if Jesus actually wanted to communicate a thousand years? How would he do it? Well, I'm kind of thinking he'd probably just say a thousand years. Why can't it just be that? Um, so, anyway, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't want to mock, but it's a crazy maker. Ask yourself the question, where's the controlling line of authority? Dave. Uh, I, I yeah. One of the Genesis thing, 
I'm sure there's some good guys on that side. Is there a reason why they want the old earth? I mean, you know, what you're what you're asking it gets down to motive, and it's hard to know. Um, With more acceptable. Yeah. It, look, it you comes. See if you're not a believer in your evolution, it's like a zillion years. But if, if you're a believer, why do they try to make it say it's all over? There's something. A lot of the guys who do it are are really smart guys. They're academically smart guys, and they've been rubbing shoulders with other really academically smart guys in their fields of discipline. You go to Cambridge, you go to Oxford, and you get your PhD in New Testament studies or in whatever you're going to get it in. Sitting right next to you is a guy who's getting his PhD in physics, and he's going to be an expert in the world, and he's got a certain way of viewing things, and you've been rubbing shoulders. And, and you know, you kind of want let's let's mutually respect each other. And, uh, and I'm not casting that on any specific guy. I'm thinking out loud about what might be some issues. And, and so you got to have some, you know, what in the guy's PhD in physics is foolish? What are you going to tell him? There's going to be some foolish stuff. I mean, look, this, this comes back to the foolishness of the gospel. Um, before there was the foolishness of the cross, there was the foolishness of creation. And um, we don't believe the things that we believe because they're popular. Or we don't try to shift them so that they become popular. We believe them because God said that's the way that it is. And we have to hold on to that. I think it's very tempting for us. I mean, watch it in your own heart. Watch it in my own heart. It's hard to be a fool. I mean, there's consequences with believing something that's foolish. You get looked over. You get passed by. You get mocked. People won't support your ministry. You know, I can't speculate for why guys do it, but it, it's a tough world to be in. Um, Let's go through the next little point here, the next two paragraphs, the right way carefully and normally, and then that will set you up for next time. The right way to interpret the Bible is to read it as carefully and normally as possible. It is my favorite word in talking about interpretation, normally. We just want to, use, we just want to look at words normally. We, I kind of use words in a normal way when I talk. It doesn't matter if I'm being poetic. It doesn't matter if I'm telling a story. It doesn't matter if I'm giving didactic teaching points. I'm trusting that language will function just normally in that. And so we want to come to the Bible, we want to be very careful, and we want to deal with it normally, right? Um, that should say 2 Timothy 2.15, not 1 Timothy 2.15, commands that we be careful readers, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, while not forgetting its unique characteristics, you know, that it is the God-breathed word, we must let the scripture mean what it means based on what the words say. Controlling line of authority. Guys, that is a huge statement. Let the scripture mean what it means based on what the words say. Words do matter. You count on it every day when you open your mouth. Or when you write an email. Right? It doesn't matter what form it's in. Text, email, Twitter, Facebook, an old-fashioned letter, words, call on the phone. You're counting on your words meaning something. You want them to determine what you said based on the way you used your words. That's why we go grammatical, historical, literal. Interpretation, it's not a magic, magical or mysterious process. 
It is reading carefully and normally, not looking for fanciful, allegorical, or personal meanings. It's not based on what the text means to me. When Psalm 19 says that your judgments are sweeter than honey, I go, man, I'm allergic to honey. Um, so what that means to me then is uh, that God's word, I guess, makes me swell up and it's, it's, an, it's an uncomfortable thing. Nobody would do that. We know what is meant in that flowery language. Even though I may have an experience, that I subject my experience to the, inter- to the intent of the author. What did he intend to communicate? Okay? Now, um, what we'll do then is we'll talk about the 12 principles of interpretation that flow from here. Let me just walk through the 12. I'm just going to read them to you, and you can turn the page as we go. The clarity of Scripture. Okay? This is a rule for interpretation. Scripture's clear. Number two, the accommodation of revelation. Um, God accommodates at points himself and his revelation so that we can understand. Number three, there's one meaning of a text. You're going to see a lot of overlap here. We've already talked about some of these things. Number four, the harmony of scripture. Okay? Uh, It all sings together and makes a beautiful symphony, but sometimes it's really important to isolate the strings. And then the drums. Okay? Normal interpretation. Taking words at face value. Um, Number six, context. That's huge. You can see how much space that one takes. Number seven, one of my favorites, progressive revelation. Revelation progressed. God didn't just zap, here's the whole thing all at once. He said, here's the first five books that came. Here's uh, Job. Here's some of this. Here's some of that. Here's some of this. Here's some of that. God decided to unfold it in a rolling, progressive fashion as it comes. Okay? And you've got to keep that in mind. Uh, number eight, interpretation versus application. Okay, we've already been talking about that a little bit. Number nine, grammar and syntax matters. It'll make a big deal where you put a prepositional phrase in Ephesians 1. Okay, we'll talk about that next time. Historical appropriateness. Make sure we see its history. Word study. Oh man, word study. It can be your best friend. It can also slit your throat. Uh, and the checking principle, using the rest of Scripture to check. Okay? And that's what we will dig into next time. I encourage you to read through all of that so that you can uh, be well-versed on it, um, so that when we come, you'll just it'll be old news to you. Okay? Any questions, guys, or comments? Derek? Can you talk about the terrorists? Yeah. Yeah. How do you interpret parables? Um, parable is, a, is, a, is a, a specific classification of literature um, that you have to be really careful with. And Jesus usually gives you the big idea that he's trying to accomplish at the beginning. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man, a merchant, seeking fine pearls. And what you have to be careful is to not make, one of my professors used to say, you can't make the parable walk on all fours if that wasn't intended. You know, you're going to go into the text and you're going to see pearls. You can't say, well, what the pearl is, is this. And um, the merchant is this, uh, or that person, if the parable doesn't tell you it is. Now, there are some parables where Jesus will actually do that. Remember the, the parable of the wheat and the tares? He tells the parable, and the disciples later go, um, can you explain that to us? 
And he goes through and he says, the seed is the word of God. The field is the world. And he goes on and tells you who the angels are and, and everything. So, um, again, your controlling line of authority is in the text. And if the controlling line of authority does not tell you specifics, don't get specific. Stay where you can stay. Okay? And you can use a checking principle. You can go to other passages of scripture. Maybe Jesus told a different parable someplace else. That might be helpful. Okay? Um, next time will be uh, a lot of fun walking through these 12 principles together. Okay? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, where would we be if you did not reveal yourself as you have through the Bible? We are so grateful for who you are, the kind of God that you are, and that you have revealed yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. Thank you especially, Lord, for revealing, as we think on this weekend, revealing the death of Messiah, the death of the Son of God in the place of those you are saving. The ultimate substitute with the ultimate blood, shedding it once and for all for those that he would save. Father, thank you. I can't imagine the great distress that the disciples would be feeling on this Saturday, hiding, afraid, disturbed, troubled by what just happened. Their leader is dead. What was happening? It must have been a a troubling time for them, Lord. I pray that you would help us to enter into that portion of your revelation and wrestle with what you were doing. Help us to get into their sandals and, and feel what they were going through. And then, God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts tomorrow morning to come together and rejoice in an empty tomb and a raised Savior. Um, thank you for revealing yourself in that way, Lord. Be with these men today. Uh, draw near to them as they draw near to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for coming.